You know, it's one thing to be overconfident, and it's another thing just to be obviously superior. And I'm talking about myself here, but uh, our team in soccer my senior year, uh, we were playing another team, and we knew going in it was a, it was a sure win. I, and that seems very overconfident, right? But we, were, we had seven seniors. We played this team before. We won handedly against these guys. And so we knew the outcome was inevitable. But what impressed me when we went to these guys' place and played, they live in a place called Huntington, West Virginia. That's where their, their school was. When we went there, these guys, younger classmen, smaller guys, but they fought tooth and nail against our team. And even though during the game and toward the end of the game, and we had a, 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 you know, we were well in hand the victory, there was no doubt about that. These guys had no quit in them. They continued to push and fight. And honestly, by the time we finished that game and hobbled off the off the field, we were glad it was over. Not because we squeaked out a victory and eked it out. We were thrilled because they put up a fight. They put up a fight. And that reminds me a lot about the spiritual battle that we're in. That against Satan, he knows he's defeated. He does. He knows that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and he knows that Jesus rose again. And the outcome for him is completely inevitable. He knows he has no chance of victory. But like that team from Huntington, he's going to fight. He's going to scrap. He's going to try to bring down as many people as he can in the process of his demise and defeat. He's going to stir up chaos in the church. He's going to cause people to believe false things. He's going to promote lies. He's going to use people that seem impressive from the outside. But in the reality is that they are headed in the same direction that he is. And so today as we return to 2 Timothy, and if you've been following us here in this series, you know that a lot of 2 Timothy has been about Paul telling Timothy how to handle these false teachers. These people who had come into the church, were part of the church, but were trying to deceive people and preach a different gospel other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so verse 1, Paul writes to Timothy, says, But understand this, Timothy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. In the last days there will come times of difficulty. Let's pray and we're going to look at this text in this passage. Father God, we thank you for the fact that the victory is certain. And God, I pray that you will help us as believers, as people who know that we are part of your kingdom and the way that you're working in our life is, is proof of that. But that, God, we won't sit back and rest on the assured victory. But, God, we will be busy working, being the church that you called us to be, being a light for this world, loving one another as you've called us to love one another. And you even said that it's by our love for one another that people outside the church will know that we're your disciples. And, God, I pray that more and more we'll look like you 
as a church, not just Grace Church, but the church across this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So he starts out, and he says, but, and he's, so he's drawing a contrast. He's talking about something that we talked about at the end of last week. He's pointing back to last chapter where Timothy, young Pastor Timothy, is told, I need you to go and to confront these false teachers. And I need you to confront these people who are being led away by these false teachers away from the gospel. Timothy, I need you to go. We talked a great deal about that. He was to be kind and he was to be patient, but he was to be forward and blunt and, and he was not to be hesitant about the fact that he has to confront somebody with the truth. Because these people last week were described as being trapped in the snare of the devil. They were, they were trapped in the snare and he says, God may perhaps grant them repentance. Maybe they'll come to their senses, he says, and escape. How? By being, they're being led back to the truth. Being led back to the truth is how they escape. And so that's interesting. It's true for Paul's day. It's true for our day as well, that the way we escape the devil's trap is by believing and obeying the truth, obeying Jesus and his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So you escape from the snare of the devil, the trap of the devil, by knowing the truth, believing the truth, and responding to the truth. And, and so it's that simple, really. We're in a truth war. We're in a battle for truth. I read this in New Morning Mercies a few days ago. It's a daily devotion I go through. It's just really great gospel wisdom. He says, Paul Tripp writes, faith means you take God at his word. You never let yourself think that you're smarter than him. And you live out, and you live then inside of his boundaries. So don't think you're smarter than God. You think that God said this, but I can live this way. I can do these things. Never works out. It doesn't work out. You follow God. You trust him. I think about just the example of marriage, okay? Think about marriage. You got a Christian couple who is having struggles or having problems. What do they need to know? What, what, what truth do they need to first and foremost grasp onto that they're denying? Here's the truth that sometimes we miss in our practical way of those who are married trying to improve our marriage. We want a better marriage so we can be happier. But God tells us the purpose of our marriage is to point people to Jesus Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself. We, our marriage is, Michelle and I are a picture of Christ's love for his church. And so that's the foundational truth that you need to grab hold of before you ever start trying to fix all the other things that are going wrong in your marriage is, what are we about? The truth is, God said our marriage is to reflect Jesus Christ. So if you, if you get stuck right there, then the other stuff really doesn't really matter a whole lot because you're missing your purpose, and you may functionally be able to coexist and get along and even have some seasons of contentment and happiness. But you will not be happy if you're not fulfilling your purpose in your marriage that God says. So God's word, God's truth, through preaching, through daily being in his word, through those who are speaking into your life, God's word exposes the lie. I'm living for myself. Marriage is about me. She needs to make me happier. He's not there for me. It exposes the lie, and it shows us the truth, and then what do we do? We then adjust our lives to the truth. God uses another couple. He uses marriage mentoring in your life to point these things out. You see the truth. You choose to believe the truth, and you begin to obey the truth. You confess, God, we've been going the wrong way. That's what confession is. It's saying the same thing that God says about this sin. God, we're coming to this point where we're admitting 
that you're right and we're wrong. We should have admitted that long ago, but we're confessing that to you. We repent, we're turning from that, and we're adjusting our lives to you. We're renouncing this old way of living, this old way of doing life, this selfish ways, and now we're going to form, get this, okay, we're going to form new habits around this truth that you have. We're not just going to say we believe it and then go on our way. We're going to form habits into our life that reveal that truth is important to us. And so when God truth, God exposes us for our sin and shows us the truth, then we repent, confess, adjust, and follow him. And so it's a truth battle. So back to verse 1, the false teachers, they did not like the truth. And so Paul writes to Timothy, but understand this, that in the last days, there's going to come times of difficulty. We're going to talk about what the difficult difficulty he's talking about there in a second is, but he says these last days. Right there is enough to get a lot of people's attention because are we living in the last days? All right. Paul wrote this a long time ago. Are we still in the last days? Did you know Why is this such a long period of last days? Well, in Scripture, whenever it talks about the last days, it's referring to a historical period or an era. And so it's the interval, it's a time period between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. All of that in Scripture is referred to as the last days, the church age, the last days. The, there's nothing else that needs to happen before Jesus returns. And we can look at signs and we can see things and we can wonder, and Jesus can return at any time. It's ready, but we need to be careful that we don't assume that we look at our culture and think, you know, things are pretty bad. It's got to be now, you know, because we know that during the Romans' time, the second, third century, things were horrible for Christians. They were awful. They were terrible. We're not there yet, but it's bad. It's bad, but we're not there yet. So there's seasons, there's cycles of persecution, ways of persecution. But I think it's going to be interesting today as we see what Paul says to Timothy is things that he needs to look out for. But let's talk about this times of difficulty. What do you, what's he referring to there? He's talking to Timothy, and he's saying, look, you need to expect times of difficulty. So let's put this in context here, what Paul's saying. Then in chapter 2, he said, there's people who are called in these snares, these traps of Satan. They're denying the truth. They're not living by the truth. And so that's the problem, Timothy. And so times of difficulty are coming because you can go and you confront, you can show the truth, but these false teachers and their disciples, many of them will not repent and escape from the snare of the devil. So Timothy, being a pastor, is difficult because some people just will not respond to the truth. So it's not going to get any better. It's only going to get worse. And this word difficulty, interesting word, it's only used one other time in the New Testament. And it was used in a translation of the word for violent, of, of a demon-possessed, two demon-possessed guys who were violent. And so he's describing this end times as a time where people, it, it's fierce, it's dangerous, it's difficult. Timothy, be aware. You and I need to be aware these times are difficult and people do not want the truth. And we're well aware of how hedonistic and materialistic our culture has become and it's becoming more and more every day. But the scripture tells us we need to be aware of that. He, Paul wrote it to Timothy, be aware, difficult, dangerous, fierce times are coming, and it's going to wax worse and worse, get worse and worse as we get closer to Jesus' return. But what signs should we be looking for? What is he writing to Timothy? What signs should you be aware of? I was 
um, with Harrison the other day, he was doing driver's ed training. He'll be 15 this month. And so he's, he's studying for the book. He's been putting a lot of work into it. And he's been uh, really, the, the test, the practice tests have been really emphasizing signs. And, he, and, and, you know, I've been driving for years, and he asked me, Dad, what's a sign mean? Oh, like, yeah, that's, that sign means blah, blah, blah. Well, eh, wrong, wrong answer, right? I didn't know the sign, what it meant. And sometimes we forget. We can be doing our thing and so busy, we're driving, doing our stuff. We got driving down, we don't, we, and we don't even know what the sign means. And so he's given Timothy some signs here. He's saying, I'm going to show you some things that are indicative of the times that we're in these last days when people don't want the truth. And I'm going to start in verse 5 and then go back up to verse 2 because verse 5 sets all this in context and gives us really the image of what Paul is trying to get at is what we're dealing with is not the vile, hedonistic, crazy, God-hating world out there. We're dealing with the church. Look what verse 5 says. These people have a, an appearance of godliness. They appear godly. They appear godly, but they deny its power. Church members who speak of God, but then they embrace their sin. Church members who speak of God, but embrace their sin. Outwardly, they seem religious. They may make professions of faith. They may talk to people and say they believe in a God. They may even go through the motions. They may come to worship week in and week out. But their actions always speak louder than words. And eventually, as we're going to see in this passage, their true character shows. Why? Because it says they deny its power. They deny the gospel's power. They keep up this form of religion, but they're not connected to the power source, which is God. And God's source, the power source, is the only thing that brings transformation into our lives, that we begin to look more and more like Jesus Christ. So there's a form of godliness, there's a shell of godliness, there's a facade of godliness, but because they're not connected to God, eventually you see them for who they really are because there's no power there. And as Adam said so well, he doesn't get baptized and all become some sudden become a perfect Christian. I've been a, a Christian for many, many years, and I'm far from it. So this is not about just overnight a 180 of change of your behavior and your, and your life, but there is a 180 change in your affections and what you begin to delight in is Jesus rather than the things of the flesh and of the world and the devil. And there's this transformation that happens because we have now been put into the family of God. The Holy Spirit resides within us. And so it's more than just a religion, something we do or go to on a certain day of the week. It's a change in our nature and our character. But he says the signs of the end times, the last days, you have people who are involved in churches, and we know it's true, don't we, that talk, a God talk, but embrace their sin. The second thing is church members who are utterly self-centered. So he's talking about people who profess some sort of religion or belief in God, and so he says in verse 2, these, peoples will, these people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, and they're arrogant. Lovers of self. What does Jesus say? That all the commandments hang upon one thing. What do he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important commandment. So right off the bat, they miss out on the very heart of what it means to know God 
and be connected to God, which is to love God with their hearts. Instead, they're, they're lovers of self. They're lovers of what they want, not what God wants. Because if you're really connected to the power source, if you really don't deny the power, you, you know God, then change, transformation begins to happen. And so we live in a culture that's clearly, it's utterly self-centered. I mean, there's no denial we can look outside into the world and see how people are in it just for themselves. Even when they lie to themselves and try to convince you that they're about other people, ultimately it's all about them. But what's sad is, and what's different here, is the church, the place that Paul says the church will get to, where it's made of people who confess to be connected to God, to have the Holy Spirit, but yet there's no no change. No change. That's the warning sign of the last days. I want what I want. I want it when I want it. And I'm pursuing access to as much of it as I want. Narcissism, hedonism, materialism, if you want to, to think of it that way. Narcissism, it's all about me. Hedonism, I want whatever I want, whenever I want it. And materialism, more stuff. i got to gain more stuff. And this has been true of every culture. Nothing's really changed in the world. But what's changing, Paul says, in the last days of those who profess to know God are described this way. People who profess to have a form of godliness, they live this way. So churches across the United States and this world are not teaching children the absolute truth of God. In fact, many churches don't even teach that absolute truth even exists. So God's word isn't being preached with authority and power. So it's no wonder that children grow up this way. Children grow up believing that they're the center of all life and everything's about them. And churches reinforce this, what's been called moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a belief in God that basically says God's out there and basically he's for me to feel better. And when I need him, he'll be there for me, almost like a a counselor in the sky an encourager for me in the sky because it's all about me, right? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, get that tattooed across my body because if I want to do this or accomplish that or, do, or have more stuff, then Jesus is going to make it happen for me. And so they begin to use this form of godliness, but they deny the power of it. So God wants people to be good and nice and kind. And of course, the number one commandment, tolerant. They must be tolerant of everything and all people. And the goal is to feel good about yourself, to love yourself, and good people go to heaven when they die, right? If you're good, you go to heaven. You'll, be, you'll go somewhere in eternity. So whether it's God or some force, he, she, whatever, you have this, some belief in God, some higher power that's there for you. And it's, it's like what uh, uh, our reverend, who's a senator, also said, whether you're a Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we're able to save ourselves, Right? Well, you can save yourself. Just help other people. That's a pastor saying that. Just, just help others, and there you rescue yourself, and you're good enough. And so it's a denial of any kind of absolute truth that exists. Lovers of self. And then what he, he continues, just they're abrasive, disobedient to parents. So just, just destruct, destructive socially, this behavior that rebels against God, against authority. It's a desire for anarchy that says, I just want whatever freedoms I want. Nobody should tell me what to do or restrain me. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless. He says that these, these are people like un, they're, 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 these things are absent. 
They're unappeasable. They're lacking of anything good. The absence, un, the lacking of, heartless. They have no heart for anything that's truly good. They may claim to have good things and love good things, but they don't truly love what God says is good. He says they're slanderous. They're without self-control. Brutal. Again, not loving good. Treacherous. Reckless. Swollen with conceit. And then here's the, here's the one that really brings it home. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I want everybody to do me a favor here, all right? Just to, to yourself, not high, but just hold, hold, hold these two fingers on your left hand out, okay? All right, and then make sure you can get to your, your wrist, your other wrist. And once you lay your two fingers right there on your wrist, and I want you to feel your pulse, Okay? Everybody should have one. All right. Do you feel it beating? All right. You're alive. All right. Just count for a second. Begin to count. Count your pulse. Measure the strength of your heart. Is your heart beating? You feel it? What's your heart rate per minute? Just take 15 seconds and then times four, right? All right. So you take your pulse. You know you're alive. You know your heart's beating. So let me ask you this. How do you take your pulse to determine whether you're a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God? You know, I'm not one of those pastors. A lot of pastors, they preach hard that, you know, you never miss church. If you miss church, you're a sinner. You're choosing other things over God. I mean, there is an occasional time where really, you know, good opportunities come up. You've been invited to somebody's beach house or there's a tournament out of town you need to go to. There's these things that we love to do, and we, we go and do them and miss church from time to time. I think the way that we take our pulse spiritually is we think about our priorities. We think about our patterns. Do we constantly choose pleasures over God? Now, the person who's intelligent and wants to create an argument can say, you know, the Scripture, they don't tell us how many times we need to go to church. You know, that's, I'm not talking about missing a church service here or there. I'm not talking about missing a quiet time, a time with God here or there. I'm talking about a pattern of your life that constantly chooses pleasures over God. You constantly choose to go to the gym instead of spending time with God. You constantly choose to scroll Facebook rather than being in the presence of God. You constantly go out of town for any opportunity that comes around because Church will be there for me in the next week. You see, that's taking your pulse spiritually. And you begin to see that there's a pattern here. Because when we see these things, it's always somebody else. It's not ourselves. But when we slow down and test and say, okay, let me, let me see really where my heartbeat is per minute. Oh, 85, that doesn't sound real healthy. Better, I better get a checkup. Well, we're taking a, a spiritual pulse here. Does the pattern of your life show that God is your priority. Are you a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God? And again, we're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about if God has done some radical change in your life, if through your profession of faith and your, and your visual demonstration of that you've died to yourself and the Holy Spirit is within me, there's just been this incredible change that's taken place. It's not something that I, I might now go to church because I'm a Christian, I mean, there's a radical difference. Scripture says you've been moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. 
We sang about in a song earlier the change that is made when Christ comes into our lives. And that changes everything. It changes the pattern. Sure, there'll be moments where we get stuck in living along the wrong way because the flesh draws us. It says, please yourself. Do this. Make yourself happy. I mean, this is so much fun. And, you know, church is sort of, you know, it's good and it's okay, but it's not as great as this. Plain and simple, it, it, it's what it is. It's a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God. And so when we're constantly choosing golf, fishing, beast trips, hunting trips, football games, basketball, gardening, movies, whatever it is, over God, and we see a pattern that's running there in our lives, we should think, oh, I need a checkup. Why don't I have any affection for God? Well, it's that church, the people there, you know, it's just like they're, 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 so, they're just fake. You know, and I, I, just, I don't get anything out of it anymore. And Pastor John, you know, he's, he's it's not good as he used to be. And, you know, the music, you know, sometimes they mess up. And, and we create this long list of things, reasons why that we choose other things over church or over God. And if you don't want to make it about church, make it about your personal time with God. But you need both. You need the community of believers surrounding you, speaking that truth into your life, because we talked a lot about this. Blind spots, we don't see stuff. That's why we have community. That's why we have accountability. That's why we invite people, be intrusive in my life, speak into my life, because I can get off and just live this way. I can be a pleasure seeker just like you. But God says, the truth sets you free. And so we're aware of these things. And we're aware of the tendency that we can live in a way that we have an appearance of godliness, we can speak all the God talk. We can quote all the verses. They're the tip of our tongue, yet we deny its power. We've given up on the transformation. God is no longer working. And so he says, these are indicative of the last time. The church is going to be more and more full of these people. And maybe you think, well, grace doesn't seem to be full of those type of people. But we're talking about the church, the, the, the universal church. And we know when we look and see the state of the church today, it, it's really, really, really sad. People who, who say they believe in Jesus, yet can say, just do good stuff and you'll save yourself. What? A pastor with training who reads his Bible says that? Very, very sad. Look what he says in verse 5b, the second part of 5. He says, avoid such people. Avoid, avoid these people who say one thing and then they go off and they just live a completely different way. And you may say, hold on, hold on a second. Like you just said last week that Timothy was to go and confront and try to get these people in the right direction. Well, there comes a time when we see that people just will not change. They are just living a lie, embracing their own self-love, and there's no real desire for God. And he says, these people are destructive to the mission. They're destructive to the cause of Christ. Because others look and see, and they're like, no grace church ain't nothing good and happen there. I know so-and-so, and he's worse than me. There's no pursuit of holiness. There's no pursuit of God. And I think when we find ourselves in a situation where we're around an unbeliever and we are struggling, we're, we're quick to admit it. I'm a work in progress. Man, by the grace of God, I would be, you know, I struggle. But there's this authenticity, this realness about the fact that we are sinners saved by grace. We have this dual identity within us, a saint in God's eyes, but still 
the sanctification process is, is in works. But when we begin to deny and love and remove ourselves from all accountability and all others' opinions about our lives and speaking into our lives, and we begin to isolate ourselves and live on an island spiritually, that's such a dangerous place. And Paul says that these things are indicative, this type of lifestyle are indicative of somebody who doesn't know Christ. And if somebody continues down this path, avoid them altogether. And so it's pretty amazing that, that he says to stay away from them. So signs of the last days. Not out there, those people, inside the walls of the church. Church members, they speak of God, but they embrace their sin. Church members who are utterly self-centered... And then he says in the last days, there's going to be church members, church leaders who prey on gullible, guilt-ridden people. They're going to take advantage of the gullible and the guilt-ridden. And this is so true. Look in verse 6 and 7, Paul's day. This was happening all over the place. For among them, these are the false teachers, are those who creep into households and capture weak women. I know that sounds strange. I'll explain it in a minute. Burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. And then he's talking about the, the, the women here, always learning and never able to arrive at the at knowledge of the truth. So if you've been with us since we went through 1 Timothy, you know that in the context of the church at Ephesus, where Timothy is at, Paul's exposed these false teachers in their attempts to gain these, these target these households. There's been a lot of talk about households and trying to recruit people through their households. And he talked a lot about young widows as well. And back in 1 Timothy about how they were gossiping and busybodies and they weren't doing anything productive. Well, apparently the false teachers are targeting these young widows. And that's what the idea of creep into households and capture doesn't mean literally capture them. He's talking about that they went to gain access. You have these ladies at home, these widows, they own their own home in that culture, in that society. Women would not have been homeowners other than the fact that they were widows, typically. And so the home was the place where their early church happened. Churches happened in homes. They didn't have buildings. And so they would try to gain access into these homes, convincing these women who were guilt-ridden and they were struggling with their sins and guilt over their sins, and they would take advantage of that, and they would try to establish or influence these, this and make a congregation, create congregations here to be able to teach their false doctrine, their false message. And so he says, be aware that's what's happening here, Timothy. Be aware that these people who are struggling with an unclean conscience and they're opening their home because this impressive preacher comes and he's saying all the right things. He seems impressive and he's got all his ideas down where he can just articulate them so perfectly. He says, be aware. And he says, these women, look what he says about the women. He says, they're always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. I love how the New Living Translation says this. It says, such women are forever following new teachings but they are never able to understand the truth because Satan has blinded their eyes. And we got to be careful as well. The tendency just to gravitate towards something that's new or great or it seems like fresh. I got a fresh word from God. In fact, that's where he goes next with this idea of these leaders. Look at verse 8. Just as Janus and Jamboros opposed Moses, so these men, these false teachers, also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. So he says, these guys, they're impressive leaders, 
but they deny the truth. They, they oppose the truth. They oppose the real truth. So wh- who are these Janus and Jambres? Who, who are these guys? Well, you won't find their names in Scripture, but Jewish tradition rose up that said that these were the two men who challenged Moses, the sorcerers, who opposed Moses. You remember when Moses was told to go to Pharaoh and to throw down his stick and it would become a snake and he had the staff and it would do cool things and he was showing them the power of God. Well, you had these sorcerers who also were able to do things like throw down their staffs and it became a snake, their rods. And so these people appeared to have a power, whether it was Satan giving them this ability or whether it was a trick and it was deceitful. Either way, that's the point that Paul's making here. These people appear impressive. Look what I can do. Look what, look, look what I can do. And does that not remind you of a lot of what you, we see on TV today, TV evangelists? You know, come and line up and let's be healed. Oh, you, oh, you're, you're, you're too, we can't get you up here because you're too far gone, all right? We can't heal you. Hey, get him out of here. We can't put some other people in the line here. All right, and, and it happens all the time is, is this, this, this showmanship that says, look, I got something fresh and new and great and it's powerful. And people fall for it all the time. And people send their life savings to preachers who even though we've been warned over and over again about the, about the fake preachers and the people who are selling these false gospels, yet people send their money to them and they live a lavish lifestyle because they're taking advantage of gullible, weak people. And so Paul says to Timothy, that's what these people are. And look what he says. Again, he's, he's dealing with the truth. He says they oppose the truth. The truth keeps coming up in these passages. So what do we do? We don't run after the latest, greatest. We long obedience in the same direction. Just keep pursuing Jesus Christ through being plugged into the power source, through your relationship with God, through your relationship with with your community, through the word. You stay plugged in and you realize that it may not be tomorrow or next week or next month that you see change, but over time you look back and you say, I see that I've been growing in holiness. I see that I've been growing in my relationship with God. I just, things that used to appeal to me more than church and more than believers and more than the Bible don't appeal to as much as they used to. Now look, this isn't just preacher here saying this. This is true. Talk to Adam and Claire afterwards. You saw their video. Talk to others in here who who have found this love for the Savior to be something that's almost indescribable. And you think, how can you love somebody you can't see? And how can you have a relationship with somebody when you open the Bible? And when I open the Bible and I just see words on the page and my eyes start to fall asleep. Stick with it. Long obedience. Know God. Pursue God. Keep seeking him. Those who seek him will find him. They seek for him with all their heart, Scripture says. So these men oppose the truth. And this war is on truth. It's about truth. And he says in verse 9, but the truth ultimately will come out. Verse 9, but they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So what does he say? He says, the true nature and character of those who are false, will come out. They will hear the word. The word will expose them. They'll begin to feel the conviction of the Spirit, possibly. And they're like, i got to back off. i got to find another church where the word's not preached, 
where I can go and feel good and tell everybody, you know, I, I go to this church. Oh, really? Oh, good for you. But there's no desire in your heart to live out on Monday what you're hearing on Sunday. The truth is strong and it's heavy, but it changes us. Jesus changes our lives. And so I don't want those of you who have a desire to deny your sin, even if it's this big right now, and follow Jesus. I don't want you to be discouraged and think, well, I just, I'm just so far away. If you have a desire to know Jesus and turn from your sin, that's a really good thing, even if your faith is really, really small. Those are signs of life. That is signs that, that God is doing something, that the Holy Spirit is within you. Don't think, i, I got to check out of grace and leave here until I'm better, and then I'm going to return, and then maybe I'll be more respectable. You're missing the point of the gospel. You come to Jesus, and you keep coming to the well and drinking from the well day in and day out. And God changes your delights. He will. He'll change your delights because he changes your heart. So, head, heart, and hands. Know this intellectually from this passage. In the last days, churches will be full of people who have superficial faith. They will. And I don't think you have to think really hard about that because you know it's true already. But how about your heart? Ask yourself, what do I really crave? What, what, what really matters to me? Am I a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God? And here's the hands, here's the action. Something that everybody in here can do this week. Break out of your normal routine, break out of your normal schedule. I ask you to take one hour just to get away to a quiet place if you possibly can. Husbands, keep the kids for the wife during that hour. And let, just get away and reflect upon the word. Reflect upon Jesus, read over this passage pray over this passage. Ask God just to change your heart to be more in tune with Jesus. And just tell God, I want to be connected. Expose those sins in my life. Expose those desires for pleasure. Don't deny them. We all have it at some level. This whole list, we can find ourselves in this list all over the place. But is your heart, is, is what your craving is, I want to know you, Jesus, more and more every day. Let's pray. Father God, your word definitely cuts through, as it says in your word, to the inner person, the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. It exposes us, and it's not real comfortable, because I must admit, just like everyone in here, that I, there are so many things that I love that have nothing to do with you. In fact, they work against you. And so many times, I can love my comfort more than you. And God, I pray that you will just convict us of our sins. Show us through the power of your word and through the working of the Holy Spirit. And then God, help us to be willing to confess that. As we're confronted with it, help us just to be willing to confess it to you, to agree with you, and ask for your strength to change. And then God, I pray you'll help us to just practically in real life here build habits around these good things, things that will help us to have that long obedience toward you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.